the cruciate ligament helps to hold the, basically the thigh bone and shin bone together. Okay. So when you rotate and pivot in particular, this is a crucial stabiliser. It works with the support of other ligaments and with the muscles around the knee. Now, if these other structures are inhibited or weakened, then it puts too much stress on the cruciate ligament itself. Right, okay. And it gives rise to a classic sensation. You feel as if the bones displace. Oh. You get a pop or your other oh, teammates no. might hear it up or a crack and then you develop a rapid swelling. Welcome to Surgical Goals, the podcast that brings you a unique insight into the world of sport and shines a light on many of the injuries picked up along the way from some of the best sports stars throughout their careers and, of course, the recoveries. My name is Jennifer Ryuk and with the help of orthopaedic surgeon Professor Gordon Mackay, we're going to delve into that fascinating side of the sporting world. This week, Gordon and I are talking about one of the most common and devastating sporting injuries that you can sustain the rupture of your cruciate ligament or your ACL. Gordon, it's just you and I this week. I want to know a wee bit about what actually is the cruciate ligament or the ACL? Something to do with your knee. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, I think we should start from basics. Yeah, let's go from the start. Yeah, let's go from the start. You're right. This is a devastating injury and it's something that's very prevalent in sport. And increasingly patients will hear about this in the media and then eventually it can happen to them. Yeah. But it's a very confusing world because they're trying to understand rapidly what it means and what really would be the best approach to their care. Okay. So the cruciate ligament is indeed the cornerstone that stabilises the knee. Okay. And the intriguing thing is, although it's such a strong ligament, often it gets injured without any contact in sport. And this throws people. That sounds horrible. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's uh, true. 70% of cruciate ruptures happen without any contact. You can be That's a scary statistic. Indeed, indeed. And it's not as if you're not fit or you're not being participating in sport on a regular basis. It can just happen and it would appear randomly. Yes, you're making this worse again, Gordon. This sounds really, really scary. So how can it happen then? Why does it happen? You should just give up sport. Actually. That's, that's <laughs> well, I'll give up and go home now. <laughs> that's the message. That's the safest yeah, approach. No, Chess. no, it's not. It's not. Being active is good. It's still a good thing. What but, is, yeah, how does this sort of injury occur then? The cruciate ligament helps to hold the, basically the thigh bone and shin bone together. Okay. So when you rotate and pivot in particular, this is a crucial stabiliser. But it doesn't work on its own. It works with the support of other ligaments and with the muscles around the knee. Now, if these other structures are inhibited or weakened, then it puts too much stress on the cruciate ligament itself. Right, okay. And it gives rise to a classic sensation. You feel as if the bones displace. Oh. You get a pop. Or your other oh, teammates no. might hear it. A pop or a crack. And then you develop a rapid swelling and you're left thinking, oh, is this serious or not? Sometimes it can be very painful. Sometimes it can be surprisingly mild. Players will take five minutes to catch their breath, think, I don't think this is so serious. It's probably okay. And they get back up. And that's usually a fatal mistake because they get five minutes at most, maybe two minutes. And then they go down. And often when they go down the second time, they really do the damage to the knee. So how serious is an injury to your ACL or your cruciate ligament? It's not as devastating as it used to be. It used to be a career-ending injury. So people would just say, my knee's gone. And it would almost imply the end of their, say, footballing or netball career. People had an understanding. They didn't really know what it was, but they knew that if their knee went, then when they played, the knee would buckle, it would swell up, it would be painful, and there would be that steady deterioration. Technology is changing, obviously, yeah. and we can approach it much more optimistically. It helps if we can diagnose it at an early stage and manage it appropriately, but it can still be devastating. Yeah, so it is a pretty serious injury to sustain, but the treatment is better now than it's ever been before. Yeah, there's a kind of pecking order. You can tear your cartilage, you know, you can spray. <laughs> but probably you can start with a sprain. You can sprain your medial ligament okay. maybe, or so that takes a wee bit of time to settle, maybe six weeks or 12 weeks of a really nasty one. Then we've got cartilage damage, which might not heal itself because it doesn't really have a blood supply, so it might need a procedure. Again, a very quick recovery from that, four to six weeks, and you can be back to unrestricted sport. Cruciate ligament's entirely different because it's not going to heal itself. And there's lots of mythology about the cruciate ligament. You'll hear certain high-profile individuals that will say that, oh, you don't need surgery, they'll just manage it. or It'll they, just come back together it, it, and be fine again. Yeah, it'll, be, it'll be come, come back. And we used to have a concept that roughly a third would manage 
a third would need surgery and a third would just give up and, you know, decide to do other things. <laughs> no. Uh, but our, our philosophy is changing because we can manage it better. Okay. So who is at most risk of tearing or rupturing your cruciate? Well, the unfortunate thing about a cruciate ligament is it's a real trauma to the joint and can often be the start of a wear and tear or an arthritic process. So it's particularly devastating if it happens when you're young. Yeah. And unfortunately, that is the highest risk group. So youngsters under 21 involved in pivoting and cutting sports, skiing is a very high risk. You, tie a, you attach a plank to your leg, you're one year, one year yeah. high risk, and then you attach a plank to your leg and, <laughs> and go, go down very a fast. Slow way, but <laughs> then you're right, there might be risks there. So skiing yeah. comes out fairly high up. But any pivoting sport like netball or football or rugby. Handball is quite big in Scandinavia. That happens to a lot of people. Exactly. Is that right? Handball. So it depends on the surfaces and the types of sport. But if you're under 21, and in particular if you're female, yeah. you're not only at higher risk of injury, you're higher risk of re-injury, which can be devastating, which you can mean that 15 or 20 years later, you're managing an arthritic knee that might stop you getting in and out of the car, that might be giving, keeping you awake at night. It moves from being a, a light sports injury to a life-changing injury. So it's important that we get this right and we prioritise wow. not only management, but also prevention of these injuries. Do we know why it's affecting younger people and particularly females more? It definitely has something to do with immaturity because for males and females, the knee when the cruciate ruptures tends to collapse in the way a little. Okay. Boys have a little bit of an advantage with a slightly narrower pelvis and more of a, a linear running action and in particular landing action. Okay. Whereas females, there's a wee tendency for the knees to drift oh, in and landing. I am exactly like that. I'm almost sort of a bit hen-toed. My uh, angle's yeah. very in, so I'm trying to work on not being in, but that sounds like higher risk as opposed your knees are going in towards each other. I'm, I'm amazed you've, you've managed to avoid any serious injuries. <laughs> Actually, so am I. I'm now slightly but, concerned. <laughs> so they've stripped it down. They looked for whether it's hormones and it might be a wee factor. Hypermobility, undoubtedly, is those that are double-jointed and maybe yeah. you would say are at more risk because they don't really support the knee and more force would go on to those ligaments. So if there's that extra plane you need to start with, if you do have that pelvic shape, I'm yeah. afraid it puts you at more risk. And conditioning is important as well. They've looked at all sorts of factors, but that would be the most important thing. And therefore, you find that governing bodies are now targeting this, especially in young females, but also young boys, and looking at exercises and preventative drills, which have been shown that if you carry out these exercises that allow you to land correctly and position your knees properly, you might be able to reduce the incidence of cruciate ruptures by up to a third. Wow. So that's good. There is preventative measures out there that you can take. Undoubtedly, there's a positive message there. And also, some of the injuries are very obvious. For example, individuals returning to sports that they've not conditioned for. Sure. Or if you're in surfaces, for example, blades were very fashionable for football boots. But in longer grass, they give you good traction to allow you to accelerate forward, but they won't release if you're pivoting or twisting. So if you're landing awkwardly and someone bumps you, your foot will often stick and the torque, the twist really goes through your knee and ruptures your ligament. So simple changes in footwear, yeah, playing surfaces, all these things that are important. From football, you quite often wear like studs or you've got the shoes that make sure you have grip on the ground, yeah. which can then maybe keep your foot there yeah, longer simple. than you want it to. Yeah, and you you often speak to footballers or hockey players that will say that pitch seemed awful dry, seemed right. a bit sticky. And then they were running and they just saw their own foot stick and sort of disappear behind them as their knee collapsed. <laughs> and then if you if it's been videoed, you can see it in slow motion. That's exactly what happens. Probably one of the best illustrations, not necessarily of the foot sticking, but of how the cruciate disrupts, was Michael Owen. For those that follow football, Michael yeah, Owen. quite famous. Uh, this quite famous, the way he collapsed on his knee. Yeah. That illustrates really the mechanism for a cruciate rupture. And you can actually see the bones displacing and kind of relocating. It was that graphic. It sounds gruesome. It really does. It can be. Well, it can be. <laughs> it involves a lot of force, you know? Yeah. People don't realise that if you jump and you land, you can land with up to five times your body weight. So it's a lot of force. And if someone collides with you or bumps you at the same time, when your foot sticks in the ground, there can be tremendous forces through your knee. A cruciate ligament, for example, takes 2,000 newtons to rupture. That's quite a lot of Newtons. Yep. <laughs> I don't know what a Newton compares to really in real life <laughs> in terms of... You know, but it's anyway, a lot of force. It's a lot of force. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a good wallop, okay? So it's not surprising that it not only damages the cruciate, but often we're understanding more that it damages the soft tissue envelope because very few things in the body get injured in isolation. It also can injure the cartilage and it can injure the joint surface. 
So when you hear someone's had a cruciate ligament injury, you assume everyone's had the same, but it can vary enormously. Yeah, well, you said some people are in agony and some people can be confused if it's happened or not. Yeah, sometimes the impact's so great when the bones come together. It's like a hard-boiled egg being tapped with a spoon. Ooh. You actually get a fracture of the surface and bits of the veneer can lift and float within the joint. And the cartilage, if it's undermined, means that you've lost not only a cushion within the knee, but you've lost a stabiliser and therefore more load goes back onto the, the cruciate ligament. Even if you repair it, it's being loaded to a greater level. Right. I think this sounds quite a scary injury, as you said, okay. but you can repair it. There is hope if this has happened to you. Yep. Traditionally, we'll go to that first. Yeah. How did you repair a cruciate? How is it done in a more traditional sense? We've looked at cruciate ligaments for, well, forever, I guess. We've been looking at uh, ways of restoring stability for people. Initially, the Holy Grail was really to allow the knee to heal and repair. So they tried with very basic technology to repair the cruciate. But the cruciate can be really badly disrupted when it ruptures. It's shredded, really. There can be very little to tie together. Okay. So they tried this, and it was a very famous study by a chap called John Fagan. John Fagan was a fantastic surgeon. He was one of these swashbuckling surgeons. He was in the Air Force. He did everything in life. <laughs> one he, of those overachievers. He, he was just colourful, <laughs> but entertaining. And, and, and fortunately for me, he, he'd been treated well when he spent six months in Edinburgh. He warmed to the Scots. So when I was in the States, I always had great fun with John Fagan. John did the original studies on this. Okay. So this globally influenced how we approached these injuries for the next 40 years. It was a sliding doors moment. He said, right, I'm going to do a study on military recruits. They were popping their knees all over the place. So we're going to, what we're going to do is we're going to see if we can repair them and see if we can get them to return to sport. He opened the knees. He genuinely filleted the knee. So you'd open the knee, flip the knee, okay. the kneecap over so the knee's exposed. And he'd put a little stitch in the tissue that was there. Then he would flip the knee back, stitch it all up and stick it in a plaster cast or immobilise for 12 weeks. And then you'd start your recovery. It was a big operation. It was a very slow recovery. And when he studied these individuals, he found that really only about a third at most, 30%, really managed to get back to a reasonable level of sport and maintained it out over, over a five-year period. So folk thought, this is really not good enough. You know, no. what can we do instead? So they said, well, what, why don't we take tissue from some other part of the body? Well, maybe we could take tissue from the front of the knee or uh, the patellar tendon, it's called, or we can take some hamstring tissue. But when you take tissue, you inevitably are trading off. Well, so you're, you're damaging something else, no? Yeah, yeah, you're giving up, sacrificing something to okay. restore stability somewhere else. And some of the donor sites have a bigger impact than others. But they realised that the knee could be stronger and more stable, even if it might be stiffer or it might not be entirely comfortable, it could give the stability back. Okay. They switched over at that point. And really for the next 40 years, that's what we've been doing. But we've realised that the results were good, but they wouldn't get any better. And we couldn't quite figure out why people were still getting arthritic knees, even though we'd restored stability. The inevitable conclusion was, it must be the initial injury that starts the arthritis. But then we started to think about it a wee bit more and think, is it just the injury or maybe the surgery is contributing a wee bit to this arthritis? Yeah, innovations are happening so rapidly in the field of medicine and surgery in particular. They're using all sorts of magic bullets, biologics to help facilitate healing. People have heard of stem cells and all these things. Of course, yeah. Can we revisit it? After speaking to John Fagan... Let's go back to John. <laughs> ...who's tragically no longer with us, I get invited to the, the Stedman Clinic in Colorado, one of the most prominent sports surgeries in the world. They asked me to talk about what I was doing with ligament repair and the internal brace. And I presented to John Fagan and the faculty what we were doing. And at the end, he said to me, you've shown me what you're doing for ankle ligaments, for medial ligaments, for all these ligaments in the body. But what about the cruciate ligament? And I said, well, I'm like everybody else. You presented the research. You told me it didn't work. I'd be very reluctant to do that if that's the case. He said, you misunderstood me. What I showed was that I could get 30% of my patients back to sport with a healthy knee, with a healed cruciate ligament, uh -huh. but we didn't have the technology to take it any further. But what I illustrated was it's possible. So why don't you revisit it with the new technology? Wow. Okay. So he was very open to progressing and making sure that you are developing new technologies. Yeah, because in the next 10 years, I have been presenting my research and my findings with these patients. And everywhere I go in the world, Australia, South Africa, the first thing they say is, ah, what about Fagan's paper? This doesn't work. 
And I said, well, technology changes everything. You've got to look at this afresh because we always wanted to restore normality to a healthy knee. Why would we possibly want to compromise a knee further by using local tissues if we don't have to? That should surely be a salvage operation. Yeah. You'd keep that in reserve because, for example, with cartilages, we now realise that a cartilage repair won't work for everybody, but we will try to repair it if it's possible. And for 80% of patients, that'll be enough. Now, 20% might re-tear it, but we don't regret having tried to repair it. Of course, it yeah. Because for the 80% that have done well... It's a better operation, it's, it's a better you've, procedure. You've got a healthy knee, you've avoided arthritis and all the secondary consequences. It was a matter of changing the philosophy. Okay. So it was quite interesting. I came home that weekend and I went to watch my son, who was 15 at the time, playing rugby. And one of his best friends ruptured his cruciate Oh, ligament. no. Poor boy. Uh, well, it was tragic for him and quite exciting for me. <laughs> I, I said to him, I said, Cameron, you know, I'll maybe have a chat with your family. But... I said, I don't think we lose much here. I can carry out a procedure that will give your knee the chance to heal normally using a minimally invasive technique, using materials that we already know are safe in the body. I think this is really important. Yeah, we weren't experimenting with materials. No. It was the technique we were experimenting with. But I said, this will provide stability and allow your natural tissues to heal because I now believe that it has the potential to heal yeah. in certain injuries. If it doesn't, then we, we can always say that we've tidied your knee up. We've given it a chance to settle. You've reconditioned, so your muscles are strong again. And if it's not healing well enough, your knee's in the perfect situation to do a conventional You can go back to the traditional surgery. You can go back surgery. to the salvage procedure. That's not going to change anything. That's still an option to you. Exactly. Ten years on, Cameron's skiing. His <gasps> knee's normal. His oh, MRI's are normal, which is exciting. Now, you can't change medical practice on the basis of one case. Of course. To me, it's really exciting. So John ultimately said that he didn't think it could heal itself because it was only maybe 30% successful. But you've got on to develop that and show that there is possibility when there's extra new technology. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, the difference is that he was just trying to stitch the ends together. Yeah. But we've done it slightly differently. An internal brace provides a little seatbelt that bridges the gap. Okay. So it allows the tissues to heal, but it protects them during the healing phase. It stops the ends pulling apart like chewing gum. So all the stem cells and the healing potential is there. And in the appropriate cases, and this is, we've learned this, certain ruptures really have very little chance of healing, even with this technique. But if you have a partial injury, mm -hmm. or if you have a certain type of injury where we feel there's enough of natural tissue left, yeah. then if you stabilise it, you can have certain benefits. One, you can move the knee straight away. You don't need to be immobilised for wow. three months. Okay. So you can walk normally as your tissues are healing. The body likes to be mobile. Immobilisation damages tissues. If you're immobilised for three months, as John Fagan did... Oh, your muscles would start to deteriorate. You're no? right. Your muscles waste, your joints get stiff and painful, your bones get weaker, your ligaments get weaker. So even though you're trying to encourage a ligament to heal, yeah. it's getting weaker. It's like being up in space, the deterioration of your body when you're just well, sitting still on Earth. Well, there's... The less cool way to go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, you're absolutely right. The lesson from space is if you don't use it, you lose it. Yeah, very much so. And therefore, immobilisation is damaging. So anything we can do to maintain function helps. This has been a big change in my philosophy in yeah. terms of how to manage these injuries. It's not suitable for everybody, but the technology is transferable. So although certain injuries won't be suitable for repair... We now know that we can use smaller amounts of donor tissue and back them up with this support, this internal brace. So we retain what's left. What the stump of a cruciate ligament will still have stem cells, it will still have a blood supply, and it has, most importantly, a nerve supply that helps with your balance and agility. I regard it like tiptoeing through the flower bed. We want to tiptoe in and tiptoe out. Yeah, of course. In the past, my surgical approach would have been more traditionally would have been to clear everything out. Okay. And kind of start again with the donor tissue. Right. But donor tissue is dead tissue. Ah, okay. Because once you've taken it from its site, it's effectively dead tissue. Yeah, it's no blood supply. So it's not dissimilar to a cadaver's tissue or a donor tissue. So it's dead tissue. So if what we're saying, well, we're not sure that your natural tissues can heal with the, all the blood supply. But we are convinced that dead tissue, if we put it in in its we'll place, join we'll, in and, we'll yeah. join in. There's a wee bit of confusion there because really the, a, a combination of the two can work extremely well and we've now found that out. But the idea of repairing appropriate cases gives us a lot of hope, especially in younger people or even low demand people. If you're on a ski holiday, yeah. you only go, you only really ski once a once year. Once a year, yeah. And you just want a stable, healthy knee, then this is a really nice alternative to a full reconstruction for, for the right patient. Talk us through the process 
process a wee bit because I know you mentioned it. It's a bit like a seatbelt. I'm just trying to imagine it in my yeah. head. Is it is it inside the middle of the knees and the outside of the knee? Is it attaching the bones? How does it actually work? Surgeons love to invent things that are alternatives to the way things were made naturally. Okay. I'm afraid that we have to be honest enough that surgeons are not good enough to improve on natural anatomy. Okay. <laughs> okay. We have been quite cleverly designed. Even though the cruciate <laughs> pops occasionally, yeah. it's been very cleverly designed. The body's okay? pretty good at what the it does. The body's pretty good at what it does. <laughs> because they've tried in the past to use synthetic replacements for a knee. And you think you can put a big, strong strap through there, but it frets like a shoelace and it throws debris all through the knee. You need to have natural biology that maintains itself. Now, the cruciate ligament is only about four centimetres long. Okay. It's about the diameter of your little finger. And it causes so many problems. And it causes so many problems. <laughs> so it's tiny. The difference with the internal brace is like the wick in a candle. All it does is go through the middle from the origin to the insertion. It mimics normal anatomy. It doesn't tighten the joint, it constrain the joint. So the joint can move naturally, but it sets the parameter. You dial in that sort of four centimetre length and then you allow the tissues to heal around them. So the tissues themselves, we only very loosely with keyhole surgery approximate. We want to do as little as possible because okay. every time you put a stitch in, it's a foreign body. It's like a scalp under your skin. Your body wants rid of it. Sure. So the less we do, the better the potential for healing. So what is the material of the internal brace? What are you putting inside? That's, Why does it work so well? Well, we're using a material which we use for non-absorbable stitching. So, for example, if you're having stitches in them for abdominal surgery or whatever, they can use material the same way. So it's actually a high molecular weight polyethylene, if you want to know Ooh, the jargon. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's good to know. I, but it's designed as, as a ribbon. So it's a two millimeter ribbon. And a ribbon has a sort of lattice, which means that things can grow in and through it. Effectively, it should become redundant as your own tissues heal around it. It becomes part of the body. But it becomes part of it. It seems to be inert in the body. Around the world, there have been over 2 million of these fibre tapes inserted safely in, into patients. If it heals well, it does become dormant. So you can forget about it. But it's a little bit of internal armour if you happen to have another injury in the future. So you tried your first procedure about 10 years ago? 10 years ago now, yeah. He was, he was, he was 15 and he's now 25, same age as my son. Which so is amazing. That's why I can keep track <laughs> you know of the him. Maths. I'm yeah, tracing exactly. him, I'm tracking him. <laughs> but obviously that's been an incredible success story. Since then, how many times have you done the procedure on other patients? We've carried out various studies and followed all our patients out within this intervening period. And that's helped us to fine tune this because we've realised that in certain situations, the results were not quite as good. So we had to start to cherry pick a wee bit. Even then, we were finding that if we took this approach at five years, 80% of our patients had not needed further surgery in terms of a salvage procedure or reconstruction. Which is a great number. Which is great. Yeah. We're delighted 80% with that. 80% is brilliant. And some others who have picked more selectively have been able to improve that percentage, obviously, if you choose the right cases. Of course, yeah. And others have presented slightly poorer results because they've, they've taken all comers. We learn from this. If we can avoid rather aggressive surgery in these, not just young individuals, but sporting individuals, Absolutely. That will, then I, we're hopeful that not only will it allow them a quicker recovery and better knee function? Yeah. But we're hopeful that we can avoid the risk of arthritis in later life or at least reduce that risk yeah. of arthritis. Yeah, it would be amazing. You you do say, though, it's not for everyone. Is there, a, is there a variation of what you do for everyone or is there ultimately some repairs that just need to be done the traditional way? There are some repairs. Sometimes you, people present late, they've not realised and the tissues have withered. Or actually, you can go into a joint and there could be no cruciate ligament. In that situation, obviously, you have to use an alternative to bridge the gap. How do you function without a cruciate? How do you walk? Well, no, you can actually. It's <laughs> amazing. Crazy. Without a cruciate ligament, People can do a remarkable amount. You can run, you can cycle, you, really? you can do straight line activities often with minimal irritation. Okay. But if you do any pivoting, twisting, turning, especially when you're distracted, uh -huh. then the knee can just collapse. It can just give way. And, and there's further it. damage. Every time it gives way. A, a joint that's unstable, no matter whether it's your shoulder, your ankle or your knee, recurrent episodes injure the joint and your joint's got a memory. It doesn't forget. <laughs> Okay, so it's raging at this, you. It's just getting comes angrier. Back. It's like sort this out. Wait, I'm going to come back and point you. Okay, that's, that's the nature of it. And we don't like when the folk get to the end stage. Traditional reconstructions, you know, you could thirty years later they could be getting a knee replacement. Wow. So we're we're looking at ways to try to minimise this. To be clear, the internal brace is something I now use in all my ligament reconstructions and repairs. Okay, but not everyone can have just a simple repair. Sometimes sure. they need more. But if they do need more, and it varies because of their personal situation. We customise it really. Regardless of their situation, 
we would still back it up with this support because it's safe, it protects the tissues, and it means that we can use a smaller graft to get the same effect. Okay. And that ultimately is to the benefit of the patient and it accelerates the recovery. Yeah. So even if you're doing a standard reconstruction, this becomes a bit confusing, with a slightly smaller graft, you can still reduce your recovery time by 40% or maybe even 50% and have a much earlier return to driving and work yeah. while, while you're recovering. If you are a, a, an elite athlete and you're on that path to recovery, you can push your body a bit faster, a bit harder. Is that fair or is it actually maybe not advised to do that? In truth, if your own muscles are working well and your joints moving normally, then you shouldn't be putting too much of a load on the cruciate ligament, for example, okay. because the knees are working naturally and it's supported. So as long as it's straight line activities, you can build up rapidly if you're comfortable. The worry in the past was even doing modest activities that dead tissue needs a blood supply. And as it grows, the blood supply grows in, the tissue gets weaker. So you can start off with a really strong knee and then it gets weaker. So it drops right down. So it's nothing like as strong after six weeks. And it takes about three months before you're back to where you started. Oh, wow. That holds you back. So even when your knee feels good and you want to kick on, it holds you back. Whereas with the internal brace, we can provide protection during that initial phase. Then you can harness all the benefits of having a comfortable, settled knee. You can condition as long as you do the right exercises to a remarkably high level and you won't do any damage internally. Okay. And, and this is transformed recovery. Really, any joint that feels stable and comfortable can be conditioned extremely well. For example, in shoulders, where we used to have everyone in a sling after we stabilised them for six weeks yeah. to let the repair, in theory, get stronger. Now we just take them out after a few days and use your arm and your own muscles protect your shoulder far better than a sling does. That's because amazing. Because you're comfortable and you're moving your joint. It's intuitive if you think about it. Of it, course. You know, you don't put as much force and strain and shear on a joint if the muscles are working normally and keeping it comfortable. This is maybe an odd comparison, but I suppose you look at the animal kingdom when they mm. injure themselves, they often mm. don't get a sling or a stooky and they can repair themselves. <laughs> so they, their body is working on that protection. Yeah. They, is they, that a stupid comparison? No, no. I think in the natural world, it's very true. I think the immobilisation, you're very vulnerable if something's immobilised. Yeah. And it might be the end. Yeah, <laughs> thankfully that's not the case for humans. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, it's yeah. that idea that I just automatically think, hold it still, get it in a sling, yeah. get it in a cast or a stookie. But yeah, really, yeah, yeah. Uh, bodies can keep moving. Bodies can keep moving. So there's something for everyone. There's a sliding scale of what is possible, but there's ultimately improvements that have yeah. been made from that traditional yeah. surgery. So Gordon, though, if I was to say rupture my ACL tomorrow, hopefully not, I'm going to touch all the wood <laughs> that I can possibly find. How would I go about getting it seen to though? Because there's something like the internal brace, yeah. something I'd be offered if I went to a doctor, a hospital. Is that something that is going forward or is it a bit more specialist at the moment? Well, first of all, you get the very best of care. Yes, okay, thank you, you, thank you. I'm hoping I <laughs> wouldn't need it. We, but. We, we would spoil you. We would absolutely spoil you. But I get your point. You know, and someone listening, is this available to them? And as I was explaining, I think the level of acceptance is gradually increasing. Yeah. And we've seen amongst it, surgeons. Amongst and, surgeons. Yeah. And I mean this surgeons privately, but also surgeons that are working within the NHS practice. Yeah. And we've seen this most obviously within foot and ankle surgeons, for example. So there have been big studies carried out in England looking at the differences between traditional treatment and the use of the internal brace. And we found that it involves fewer clinic visits. It can half recovery time. So the NHS are keen to adopt it where it's been proven to be of value. Yeah, it's so, financially valuable to them as well. Surely less treatment is a good thing for everybody involved. Everybody wins economically. Yeah. You're back at work, etc. yourself personally. But if you are only having two visits to the hospital instead of five, and you need only a few weeks of rehabilitation yeah. instead of months and months, then you're absolutely right. There's a saving there for the NHS. It takes time sure. and it isn't available everywhere, but it's certainly worth inquiring about locally because the pickup is increasing. I'm obviously a, a proponent of this. Of you know, course, that I, of I've course. developed this. And there'll be others that will argue with me and say, oh, I never use that. I always like the traditional way. This is how I do it. And I understand that. Surgeons have to decide what they feel is best for their patients. Of course. But I'm thoroughly convinced, having done this over yeah. that, for a 10-year period, that this transforms a patient experience. And in terms of performance sport, it's so dramatic that it actually has a, a commercial impact as well. And this is overlooked to be now we're in the world of Moneyball. I hear today about data protection. Folk are complaining that they're yeah. getting analysed every second while they play football, for example. Yeah. And they're saying, well, who owns that data? Because people are using that information to improve team performance of course. and results. 
The black hole here is the very obvious fact that these injuries are not analysed at all. Folk don't actually look at the detail in terms of recovery and how that can affect performance in sport. For example, if you have a standard reconstruction and someone removes two of your hamstrings. Fancy that. (laughs) No, 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 you wouldn't intuitively. But actually a lot of surgeons, that's their preferred choice. Okay. Because they feel they can get the best stability in your knee. Right. But as someone who played a little bit of football of when he's younger. Well, good level of football. And it's particularly pertinent since I pulled my hamstring last night playing five oh, sides. No. That hamstrings do something useful. Okay? They are pretty they, important. They are there to support your knee. So I'm very reluctant in these sportsmen to sacrifice and it's such an important structure. Of course. All these little things can affect the risks of re-injury and performance. So it can then translate into a commercial impact and value. And I don't think this has been truly appreciated in the world of sport. I don't just mean here, I mean kind of globally. So in terms of if you recover quicker, you're back out doing, well, your job quicker. There's a, there's a, a financial gain in that as well for the clubs. Is that, do you mean look at it from well, another sort of perspective? Or Well, if we've looked at how we've used this technology for performance sport or for those returning to sport, yeah. even when we've had to do reconstructions in, in a more traditional sense, we're having to use donor tissue. Mm-hmm. But we use less tissue, as I explained, because we can use a smaller graft. When we do this, we found that at four years, our re-injury rate has dropped to about 2%. Oh, wow. This isn't just elite high performance and it does cover a variety of ages. So maybe it would be higher if we were just looking at 15-year-olds. But the fact is, it's, it's, it's low. Now, if you had a standard hamstring reconstruction, there's a big study in Australia looking at thousands of folk that had hamstring reconstructions, that they found that the re-injury rate was closer to 20%, 15 to 20%. That's a massive difference. Now, if you've already lost your hamstrings and you've been re-injured, that has a devastating impact in your ability to return to sport. Of course. And this, the percentage that do return drop off naturally after further surgery. But the same can be said in performance sport. We've also found that we've had a lower incidence of re-rupture in the other side because often if you come back and you've not fully recovered, you overload. You know how it works. Yeah, you just you, you favour the other side automatically, and the incidence of further cruciate injury can end up being higher on the good side than on the reconstructed you kind side. Of overcompensate with everything else. So, just looking back at the more traditional methods, you mm. have mentioned a couple of times using a bit of the hamstring. What are we talking about? Because I'd imagine you take a tiny bit of the hamstring <laughs> and just put it in the knee. Because you said cruciate ligament is not a large ligament, so surely you don't need much. I can understand that, how folk would visualise this as being a small, because yeah. it's often a very convenient way to describe it. We'll take a small piece of your hamstring. But Doesn't ham- sound great, but I'm almost on board because you're it's almost small. On board. Cosmetically, it's nice. It's a small incision. <laughs> yeah, you know, tiny. Small. It's tiny, tiny. You hardly miss it. But the hamstrings are quite important structures. They add stability to your knee. So anyone that's pulled a hamstring knows that it's a big structure. It goes from your bum, basically, yeah. to your knee. And it hurts. And, and it hurts. <laughs> yeah. And if you're going to harvest a hamstring, then although you can use a small incision, you actually strip the tissue. And the reason you take a longer piece of tissue is because they fold the tissue over to thicken the graft a little. Right. And they also need tissue to dock in the bone at either end. They're actually looking for a graft that might be 8 or 10 centimetres long, and they want several layers of it. So uh, stripping a hamstring involves taking something the size of a knitting needle and when you push it up the thigh and the inside... Oh no, everyone's just going wincing at a needle going into their thigh. It's got a tendon stripper, it rips the, the, the muscle off the tendon all the way up. You could almost do a testicular biopsy at the same oh. time. So it goes it goes all the way up there and then the tendon drops out of the joint. So you've maybe been left with 24, 27 centimetres of tendon just dangling out of your knee. And then... That sounds you, horrible. Sometimes new techniques can allow you to use one hamstring, but traditionally they would take two. There are only three in the inside of your knee. I was so going to say, so <laughs> just for anyone who doesn't know the biology of a hamstring, yeah, and to yeah. be honest, my knowledge of it isn't great. Yeah. Is a hamstring just one big muscle? If your knee's bent, if you're sitting and listening to this podcast, yeah. your knee's bent, knee's bent, and you take your right hand and you put it just behind your left knee, uh-huh. and then you just tense up a little and you'll feel a cord, like a guitar string you can twang yeah, yeah. behind your knee. Yeah. That's your Slightly hand. to the right of me. So, <laughs> yes, right? so it's right in of centre yeah. in the inside. Yeah. But they don't just stop there where you're twanging it. They wrap around the shin bone at that level and they attach at the front of the shin bone. So they right. pull your shin back the way when your knee's at 90 degrees. If you wrap your fingers from that tendon that you're feeling uh-huh. onto the shin bone, right. that's where they attach. So they'll be right. stripped from the bone. Oh. 
all the way up. And you can feel it as you follow up your thigh. You can twang it all the way up, keep following it up. Yeah. And then it gets softer into the muscle. And it would be all the way up to that level where you would strip it. I've got a bit of fat in me as well, so I nah. can't feel it the whole way up. <laughs> Not at all. But then, <laughs> everyone's like, oh, lost it, I've lost it. <laughs> but then it does leave a big chunk of muscle, like a yeah. bit, uh, like a stake that's not attached to anything. Ooh. So it just recoils and sticks to what it can stick to. Traditionally, they thought that you got a lot of regeneration there, but actually you're left with a weakness, especially with your knee bent to 90 degrees yeah. or further. So anyone that's had their hamstrings taken for the cruciate ligament mm-hmm. will find it a weakness and a difficulty to bend their knee to kick their backside. So you lose a wee really? bit in terms of speed effectively because of that. You lose a little bit of protection because of that. It's a good salvage procedure, as I was saying. It's really good if you if you need tissue. Yeah. It's lovely and flexible. It's, you can go anywhere with it. You know, you can shoelace a big bit of spaghetti. Sure. You can use it and it's nice, but it has limitations. One, it leaves that defect. And secondly, like, for example, in the younger female athlete, it will be more elastic, it'll be more of a bungee cord, it can stretch, it can fail. So it has its own challenges as yeah. well. And that's why we're trying to look for alternatives. Hamstrings have a place. I don't want to completely Absolutely it, no. But I, folks should realise that it's not a trivial throwaway. You are compromising your knee function for a good reason. Yeah. But you're trading. And that's why they're looking for alternatives now. They're trying to revisit the using a wee bit of patellar tendon with it. And if you use a smaller graft, it's more forgiving. If you used to take a big graft, it gave you an ache at the front of your knee and made your knee a bit weaker. Smaller grafts you can compensate for quite nicely. Can you do a bit of patella and hamstring? Can you like merge that you, or does that pot- not work? You potentially could, but it's... It starts uh, to get more messy when you yeah, use... Yeah, it's a bit like mixing a starter and dessert together. Yeah. It's just not quite going to sit comfortably. Sure. Biologically, they're different tensions. So the patella tendon is stronger. It's got a wee bony attachment at either end, so it can dock and fix nicely. The hamstring is more of a cord that, that you want to tension and take yeah. the slack out of. And maybe even slightly over tension because it will stretch gradually. So a wee bit more guesswork involved perhaps there. And the patella tendon is just behind your kneecap? The patella tendon is a bit below your kneecap, right at the front there. Oh yeah, and you can feel that. You can feel that and it's right down to that wee kind of bump on the on the shin bone. Yeah. That is where the tendon attaches. And you can take a small portion. It's actually quite a broad tendon. So you can take a very small portion in the middle and it fills in with scar tissue so that you don't miss it ultimately. And increasingly they're looking at using a bit of the quads tendon, which is above because the quad tendon being bigger, they're hopeful that you won't miss it. From that area as much. So they're looking at that as an alternative. So they're actively looking for alternatives. When I initially started out in sports medicine, I did a wee study here at Glasgow University, uh, a thesis on injury prevention in sport, but particularly football. Okay. And we looked at every team in Scottish football with Professor Stuart Hillis. He was the the leading light and we looked at this and we just followed them through and we realised that one in six players get injured in pre-season. That's this, so rubbish, is this, isn't it? You don't right. even make it to the game. You don't even make it to the game. And then we followed these on and we found that one in three of these individuals get re-injured and miss the big portion of the season. And we said, this is absolute madness. We have a traditional pre-season, which is meant to get you in peak get condition. Get ready, yeah. And what they were really doing were doing activities that were completely alien to them, you know, like running three times a day, for example. And it was after a layoff. So it wasn't surprising they were getting overload and overuse injuries and they were breaking down. This was a simple wee study. It did fortunately have an impact in sport, but this was my first insight into how reviewing injury data can affect performance. Okay. So if you lose several of your key players because of how you structure preseason, it's a disaster. I think it translates to our understanding of ligament damage now in terms of whether it's a cruciate ligament or other ligaments. We have an ability to treat it differently. And we're seeing this in American sport. It's starting to creep in. They're starting to use the internal brace for high performance sportsmen. I want to kind of go back to the injury side of it. When you were talking a wee bit about re-rupture and re-injury, we've talked about obviously people are predisposed maybe to this kind of injury. Does it happen regularly that once you've done one knee, the other one's just as much at risk? Or should you be scared if you've done one? Is it going to happen again? With traditional reconstructions, often the risk was greater on the other side. And you could argue for the reasons for that. But the, the incidence can be high, sometimes threefold higher on the uninjured side. The assumption was, well, you're predisposed to it, so you might get it on the other side. I'm not sure that's entirely the case. I think the risk can be reduced. So there is that crossover. But the younger group, those that are under 21, are the highest risk and the most devastating problems when they re-rupture and the most challenging. And that's why I think we've really got to focus on this young group. And what we found, actually, is if we can repair their tissues and we add an extra little support, 
This is an interesting thing. This is getting a wee bit medical. Okay, okay no, I'm, I'm here. I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm with you. I'm with you. Yeah, excellent. <laughs> excellent. This goes back again in surgical history, right? Okay. Before you had a keyhole approach to the knee yeah. and you had to just open the knee, yeah. they realised that they couldn't do much with the cruciate ligament. When it was gone, it was gone. So they said, well, what can we do as an alternative? If your knee keeps collapsing every time you twist or pivot, then your knee swells up and you can't straighten it, and you, 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 et cetera, et cetera. What can we do about it? They said, well, why don't we just put an outside support? It's not entirely normal. But an outside support, okay, the okay. jargon for the outside support. The outside support wraps around your knee as if if you put your hand on the outside of your knee, yeah. your middle finger would point roughly in a direction if it was pointing towards the centre of your knee. Roughly the direction that this ligament runs in. Right, okay, everyone is now doing this, listening Every, to the yeah, podcast. Yeah. So they got the yeah. hand in their knee, hand in their knee. Again, right? Uh, yeah, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes it's more accurate if you point your finger with your hand in your pocket. It gives a sense of direction. Okay, okay? yeah, and it's also the direction the cruciate line runs in. So it's sure. parallel to your cruciate ligament. Okay. If you didn't have a cruciate ligament and they put this, put anything there actually yeah. to tighten up that band, then your knee wouldn't pivot and give away. You know, might not be perfect. Might not do much though, surely. Might, Would that well, be quite it could stuck? Cause, it could cause a wee bit of stiffness or discomfort, okay. but it often helped to reduce the risk of this instability. Uh -huh. So they thought this was a really good add-on. Often it was very helpful. Then they found out 40 years or so ago about the keyhole inside. And of course, the assumption is we've moved on to the new technology. Yeah. We can reconstruct a cruciate ligament. Uh, so they all sort of forget about that. Forget it, right. And only the older surgeons would do something in the outside as well as the inside. Okay. And they would say, how old school, you know, come on. <laughs> come on, guys, That's you're stuck in the past. See, when you say outside, do you mean outside the body or I, I mean outside, outside the, the knee? Outside the knee joint, but under the skin. Under the skin, yeah. Under the skin. Runners, for example, will talk about the early tibial band. They'll know that there's something snaps around in the outside of the knee. Yeah. It's more on that superficial level. Got you. Okay. It's just under that band, actually rather than deep in the knee. Sure. And a good analogy is if, if you remember in a play park and how a roundabout goes round, okay? Uh -huh. If you want to stop the roundabout, if you stand on the edge and grab the bar, uh -huh. you know, if a kid's spinning round, yeah, you want yeah. to stop it, it's really easy to stop from the outside yeah. because you get much more purchase yeah. in controlling the pivot and the rotation. Sure. But if you try and stop it in the middle and just grab hold of the bobble in the middle of the roundabout, you go round and round, you go and, round, and, round. and round for a long time. <laughs> yeah. So the thing about the cruciate ligament is right in the middle of your knee. So it's got to be strong, but it's mechanically disadvantaged a wee bit. Yeah. But if you have something on the outside of your knee, it can stop your knee collapsing and pivoting in. Okay. Like your knees coming together, as you were saying, and yeah. collapsing yeah, together yeah, like knock knees. Yeah. So it can help to control that. More recently, they've revisited this, of course, and they've started to realise that in 87% of cruciate ruptures, you actually damage the wee ligament that sits there. Right. Now, it seems a small ligament, but it's important and it only needs to be small because it's in a mechanically a really good position. Yes. If we augment that with an internal brace, we found that we can subsequently reduce our re-injury rate. People have started to do it again using hamstrings and other structures again. Okay. And it's equally effective. But again, we've got the donor issue. You're, you're, yeah, you're so, sacrificing. Yeah. So then if you sacrifice one for your, your ACL and then another one for the outside ligament, you're thinking, wait a minute, that's that's a lot to get a stable knee again. Yeah. But if you're repairing or reconstructing with a small graft, uh -huh. using an internal brace to make it stronger, and then you add this extra support, then that's the belts and braces. Okay. okay? And that's giving us our best results by far wow. from, compared to anything we've ever had in the past. So I'm hoping that we can gradually share that information and convince people that there is a role to address this simply and effectively because it's only 10 minutes onto a standard procedure but might reduce that future re-injury in that young group especially by up to a third. That's incredible. And again, for surgeons that might not want to change practice quickly, yeah. even if they do their standard approach to the cruciate ligament, why not add a wee internal brace on the outside because of the potential benefits without any donor site problems? Yeah. We've been doing this over the last four dash five years. Okay. And we've increasingly convinced that this this makes a massive difference. In surgery, I always say it's amazing when the staff get a joke. They always try and say it before I say it. But <laughs> so the knee comes in and it's wobbly. When you're asleep it's even wobblier. Ooh. So it's it, it yeah. can give you the shivers. It's like opening a sock drawer. Like, it just flaps back and forward. Oh, okay. And then or, it's not or, when you want your knee ever to do. Or a cupboard door, you know? <laughs> and and, and a breeze. But if you do this outer ligament internally brace it, the uh -huh. knee's immediately stable. Wow. It's almost as if you don't need a cruciate ligament. So the early surgeons were actually better surgeons than we are. Because wow. they, they went out, oh, they're old school, you know, yeah, and yeah. actually we disregard their insight at our peril. 
because we keep rediscovering what they knew but didn't have the technology to manage appropriately. We now have technology that allows us to address this. So it's a really exciting era. Everything's going to change. Everything's going to change. Wow. I mean, yeah, that's one thing that's certain, I suppose, that it's going to continue to change. Indeed. When you're talking about younger people getting these injuries, are they more likely to recover, though, than, say, you do it at 55? Are the muscles going to recover quicker? Are you going to have a better outlook going forward? Well, with young people, we realise that once we restore stability, they're comfortable almost immediately. Okay. The recovery is ridiculously quick. Yeah. In fact, that's slightly a problem because they feel great. And you're trying to say the biology is still your healing. Time. Take yeah. your time. You can't cheat that. It, tissues are reforming and they get gradually stronger according to the loads that are put on them. Okay. So be patient. This is the time frame. And we've got a rehabilitation program that's specific for repair, for example. But yeah, do young people recover quicker? Of course, of course. It, it's lightning or compared to the rest of us, you know. <laughs> and if they lose muscle tone, they regain it really quickly. They don't get troubled with stiffness the way that we can when we're older. Yes, yeah, so they're very resilient and they have real healing potential. Yeah. And we should be harnessing that potential and we also should respect it. And that's why we should do less surgical trauma yeah. on younger people. It's interesting. They used to suggest that, say, if you were immature, mm -hmm. maybe 12, 13, they would say, well, just wait till you're your adult size. Okay. okay. And then everything, your growth plates have closed and sure. you, you, you're at a certain level. And then we can do a standard reconstruction on you. We won't interfere with these growth areas and we'll give you a stable knee for, for adult life. Okay. But the reality was it's quite devastating. If you have an unstable knee as a youngster, yeah. where you've got a wee bit more mobility, hypermobility, you can chew up your cartilage, you can damage the surface. And it could mean by 16, the knee is so damaged that we can't actually ever have a successful Repeat result for you. Yeah. We can make it stable, but it won't be a comfortable knee oh, and it'll no. progressively be a problem knee. And we lose track of this. You know, we always hear a cruciate ligament, oh, back after how many ever months, you know, nine months, great. Yeah. But they forget those that don't get back. Actually, in wider studies, maybe only 65% or 60% might get back to the level of sport they were at before. Yeah, And that's, not... op that's optimistic. Yeah, that's so great. So a, a lot of people don't, but a lot of people get really devastated injuries that stay with them. So we've got a responsibility as surgeons to try and improve their care. Yeah. Would it be the same for professional athletes? Do they recover quicker than just me and you running around the pitch? Or is it because they put more pressure on it, I presume? They it maybe not as good? Yeah, they've got, they've got the potential and the support to yeah. recover and have accelerated rehabilitation safely. So okay. you can take it to another level. So we're now finding we can get professional footballers, for example, back playing full competitive matches at five months, where really the recommendations would have been nine months to wow. a year before. So I think... That's a massive difference. It is a massive difference and things are changing and it helps so when they've got that infrastructure and support. They can really take advantage of it. Did I see that Mark Reynolds from Aberdeen Football Club, yeah, did yeah. he get that done and he was back in five months? Is that yeah, right? He's seen it yeah. in practice. And he's a very good example of that because he's a very dedicated athlete. It was ridiculous what he was able to do even six weeks after surgery but he'd lost very little in muscle tone. He was able to maintain his strength and he, he had a fantastic recovery and at his stage in his career he won't mind me saying so but his stage in his career to get an extended contract in his 30s for another three years yeah. and so forth of is a demonstration of confidence in him yeah. and also a return on his hard work uh, during his rehabilitation. It's a little easier at that level, but sometimes professional athletes can be a bit reckless as well. They can just, <laughs> you know, they're, they're actually their own worst enemy. They go, go, go. go they go, push, go. push, yeah. push. Yeah. It should be an escalator, your recovery. You should go up smoothly admiring the view rather than a snakes and ladders <laughs> bumpy ride. You know, it should be nice and steady recovery. I like that. That's very clever. Should you have a lot of physio after that? Is it a combination process to recovering? Is it a case of just getting the surgery done and then going walking? Or do you need to have somebody there to help you through it? I think it's really helpful to have structured physio and rehabilitation. The surgery, now I always say the surgery is about 50%. And okay. the other 50% is your rehabilitation. So you need that team and we've got an extended network that are very, very experienced and very, very good physios that can provide guidance. Folks should always look for that support. I think it shouldn't be underestimated. Also, prior to surgery, if you've got that preparation, it allows your recovery to start off really quickly and you have an accelerated recovery if your knee's settled and comfortable beforehand. Yes. So we have a window where we can either go in immediately or you allow the joint to settle just a little and then you can operate successfully. Perfect. But I think we'd just like to summarise, really, if mm. someone's listening now and they have themselves experienced a cruciate and ACL rupture, yeah. What would your advice 
be? How do you go about dealing with it? I think it's important to get it assessed properly. Sometimes it can be misdiagnosed as a medial ligament sprain or it can be suggested to you it might be something different. But I think if you have that loss of confidence, that sense of instability in your knee, you should really go and see ideally a sports physiotherapist or a doctor or take it further yourself and basically seek advice at an early stage. It's same for parents with their children. I think it's important that they explore the options and look for appropriate advice at an early stage because it's a complex field, but it shouldn't be that complex yeah. really. Because identifying it isn't always straightforward. You maybe do need to get that extra well, opinion. If you're uncomfortable, then you can usually splint or guard your knee effectively just to protect it. Okay. The standard tests for a cruciate injury are usually a demonstration of how unstable your knee is. But you can compensate for your cruciate by tightening all your hamstrings around your knee. Okay. And therefore, even in experienced hands, your knee can feel great. It's misleading. So if you're uncomfortable or anxious, then your knee can feel stable. And you get simply reassured and said, oh, I'm not worried about that. Don't worry. It must just be a bad sprain. We'll just rehabilitate you and send you back. But we often see sportsmen who go back after three months, maybe, uh -huh. of rehabilitation. And usually within five to 15 minutes, it's very predictable, they go down with another injury and often it's much more damaging than the subsequent injury. How do you actually identify it then? Is it a scan? Is it Because I think I, yeah. I saw something where someone had had an x-ray uh, and being told there was nothing broken, so they'll be fine, and walked about in it for, what, a year, a year and a half? Yeah, you're right. An x-ray is helpful in case, because sometimes you, you chip a wee bone when you rupture your cruciate. Yeah, like you so there is a wee clue on x-ray. Generally speaking, the x-ray is absolutely normal. So what I would suggest is if there's uncertainty, once your knee's settled and comfortable, before you return to any sport, yeah, yeah, and go, you should go back to your physiotherapist or your doctor and get your knee re-examined when you're comfortable because it's often very obvious at that stage that your knee's unstable. If there is a suggestion that it is unstable, then a scan's very helpful to confirm that and also to identify associated damage. Okay. And final question, just again, if somebody is dealing with this injury and they are kind of inspired by what you said in terms of the treatment options, is there scope to request something different if you are getting told the only option is for sort of that reconstruction traditional surgery? Yeah, I think you're you're always in a position where you can ask for, for a, a second or alternative opinion. Sometimes if you shop around for too many opinions, it just confuses you and actually leaves you uncertain about what to do and sort of creates a, a degree of paralysis almost. But it's reasonable. It's an important decision. And, you know, certainly if it was to relating to my family, I would be inclined to say, you have to think about this seriously. It can have a, a lifelong impact. Mm -hmm. Therefore, you want to get the best advice. I'm not suggesting I give the no, best advice no, for no, everything. No, no, that's what I'm saying. Because everybody has an opinion. Different options, yeah. But I would strongly advise that opinion. So it's important for amateur individuals and recreational sportsmen as much as it is for an elite person. So we deal with challenges. For example, there was an Olympic athlete we dealt with recently, a swimmer, and our concern was performance and the difference a hundredths of a second can make in performance. Of course. And we were saying, well, objectively, there's no way we would want to weaken or undermine your hamstring tissue, for example. So in that situation, we were able to repair our tissues. It was ideal for her sport. We were delighted that she was able to medal. So that's always nice to hear. But that was specific for that individual. But others can also benefit that way by having their treatment customised to, one, the extent of injury, and two, what the real aspirations are. Okay, fantastic. Gordon, thank you so much. That was absolutely fascinating. And hopefully people can avoid as many cruciate injuries <laughs> as possible. But the good thing is that there's hope out there. There's definitely hope out there. It's not a career-ending injury. It's not so devastating now. It just needs to be managed and you will bounce back to your best performance. But you got to like it. We'll bounce back. <laughs> thank you so much, Gordon. Thank you. Thank you.